All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prashtaya Bhutale. Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Devi. Gauravani Pacharne Nirvasesa Sindhivadi Paskachade Satarne. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uttapada Kamalam Shri Guru and Vaishnavam Shah. Shri Uttam. Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Zagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadradutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva. Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitam Shacha. Anchakalpa Jubishaki Pasandviya Vachap Tijanam Pavane Vaishnavan Mohanamaha. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. October 9, 2017, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii, from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 26, Fundamental Principles of Material Nature, Text 20. Vishvamat Magatam Vyanjan Kutisto Jagadankuraha Vishvam, the universe, Atmagatam, contained within itself, Contained within itself. Vyanjan. Vyanjan. Manifesting. Manifesting. Kutosta. Kutosta. Unchangeable. Unchangeable. Jagat Ankuraha. Jagat Ankuraha. The root of all cosmic manifestations. The root of all cosmic manifestations. Swatejasa. By its own effulgence. Apibat. Swallowed. Tivram. Dense. Atma prasvapanam. Which had covered the Mahat Tattva. Tamaha. Darkness. Muted. Translation in purport by Srila Prabhupada. 
Thus, after manifesting variegatedness, the effulgent Mahatattva, which contains all the universes within itself, which is the root of all cosmic manifestations, and which is not destroyed at the time of annihilation, swallows the darkness that covered the effulgence at the time of dissolution. Purport. Since the Supreme Personality of Godhead is ever existing, all blissful and full of knowledge, His different energies are also ever existing in the dormant stage. Thus, when the Mahatattva was created, it manifested the material ego and swallowed up the darkness which covered the cosmic manifestation at the time of dissolution. This idea can be further explained. A person at night remains inactive, covered by the darkness of night, but when he is awakened in the morning, the covering of night or the forgetfulness of the sleeping state disappears. Similarly, when the Mahatattva appears after the night of dissolution, the effulgence is manifested to exhibit the variegatedness of this material world. Vishram Atma Gatam Vyanjan Kutasto Jagat Ankurha Swa Tejasa Pivativram Atma Prasva Panam Tamaha Thus, after manifesting variegatedness, the effulgent Mahatattva, which contains all the universes within itself, which is the root of all cosmic manifestations, and which is not destroyed at the time of annihilation, swallows the darkness that covered the effulgence at the time of dissolution. So here we find darkness being swallowed, light being manifested. Um, it's interesting about this word, swallowed. How do we understand this word, swallowed? Hmm. Actually, all of us are covered in darkness. We're covered in ignorance. We don't understand what is what. Hmm? We like to pretend that we know. I forget what it's called, some kind of imposter syndrome, that's what it's called. Modern psychology says that all of us suffer from an imposter syndrome that everyone knows inside that they're not really as clever or knowledgeable or whatever as they appear to be. We all know that we don't know very much at all. In fact, we don't know what we don't know. Just like the astronomers say that at best we can only see 5% of the matter within the universe. Well, that's, it's interesting. If they can't see 95% of the matter, maybe they can't see 98% of the matter. How do they know that it's 95% that they can't see if they can't see it? We don't know what we don't know. We don't know what's, you know, we're, we're so covered by ignorance. And the little that we know is very partial and very conditional. We are therefore floundering in darkness. And therefore, our decisions are not very good. We're constantly making decisions that we regret. Even the things that uh, we're happy about uh, aren't really what's satisfying us. And we are trying desperately to try to figure out what's going on, try to figure out ourselves. We mentioned the other day the increasing popularity on uh, 
the internet, social media, of different tests to try to figure out yourself. So we're trying to figure out ourselves. We're trying to figure out the nature of the world, the nature of society, the nature of the body. But we're we're so bewildered. And the more that one studies, the more that one experiences, the more one understands that the less one knows. It's a very frustrating experience. My, my grandson just had this situation, so he's going to graduate at the end of this uh, school year from university. And he was speaking with his academic advisor and asking, you know, do you really think I'm ready to get a good career? He's going to get married at the end of the school year. And his advisor said, what, you, what your problem is, is that as you're advancing in knowledge in your field, you become more and more aware of what you don't know. You, know, you start off thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm an expert, I'm wonderful, and then you just find out, you know, I'm not. So how to get rid of this darkness? How to have, as it's said in this verse, a, a light that swallows up the darkness? Well, the first point here is that the energies of light, the energies of knowledge and, and love and existence, they're eternal. They're always there. The point is made here uh, that we are eternal. We are e- eternally cognizant beings. We are eternally spiritual beings. It's already there. It already exists. And if we are eternal, our divine consciousness is also eternal because that's part of the definition of who we are. Krishna says, never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor in the future will any of us cease to be. But if I have existed eternally, who is this I? Mamai Vamso Jiva Loke, Jiva Bhuta I am a part of the Supreme. Therefore, if I've always existed, my consciousness, my awareness, my divine awareness must also always exist. But we have some sense of this, even when we're in darkness, even when we're in ignorance. We have some sense of, you know, every child, practically every human child, asks their parents, where did I come from? You know, the answer to that is usually some form of, of sexual reproduction, some answers, some degree of answer of, about sexual reproduction. But it doesn't really answer the question, does it? Because, well, where did I come from before that? What's my origin? We have a sense of exist of beginningless existence. And, of course, if we think about beginningless existence in terms of the body, then we just think about our genetic ancestry. So, finding out your genetic ancestry has become big business. And people are doing this genetic testing to find out where did I come from? Thinking I'm this body, I first came into existence in the womb of my mother, therefore my origin is looking back through my great, 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 great grandparents. But however we do it, we have a sense of beginninglessness. We have a sense of there's been something about me, some some quality of me that always exists. And we have a sense of, of going into eternity in the future. You know, it's quite interesting, although death is the only 
absolute certainty of life, we live as if we're never going to die. We're constantly planning for a future. Constantly planning for a future. Because we have a sense that I'm going to exist into the future. And our greatest fear is of not existing. That's why we fear death, why we fear dementia. We have a fear that I won't exist. So we have evidence that we are eternal. And not only are we eternal, but even this energy of illusion is explained here is eternal. All these different energies are also existing. The spiritual energy is always existing. And the energy of illusion is always existing. You know, there are some philosophies that say that God created the world from nothing. Both the Christians and the and many scientists say this. But our philosophy is no, there is never a nothing. The and we see also, even in our normal experience, that there's the conservation of energy. Matter and energy are not created or destroyed. They change form. But they're not destroyed. There's a constant balance. And we also see that although everything is existing, there are cycles of manifestation and non-manifestation. There is sleep. So Prabhupada in this purport compares this darkness of ignorance to sleep. And in fact, on the, in the lecture Srila Prabhupada gave on this verse, he talks about this darkness as, as a sleeping state. And, and Prabhupada, in giving a lecture on this verse, talks exclusively about the individual in darkness rather than the creation in darkness. Prabhupada, in his lecture on this verse, doesn't talk about creation at all. He only talks about individuality. So we see that there's natural cycles The plants sleep at night. Nocturnal creatures sleep during the day. There's, from death comes birth again. Even the products of of the bodies that die are the very products that fertilize the ground and give the substance for new life. That from sleeping comes wakefulness, from winter comes summer. So when things are apparently not there, they're simply in a quiescent state. They're in a covered state. It's not that they've gone away. It's just that they're not active or they're not manifested. And, you know, we have this in our daily lives. And Prabhupada talked about this in his lecture. You know, when we're sleeping, we, we don't remember what we have to do during the day. Sometimes we, we dream about our, our daily responsibilities, but we don't remember them exactly. So when I was sleeping last night, it wasn't, in my dreams I wasn't thinking, oh, I have to give the class tomorrow morning. <laughs> in fact, I don't even remember what I dreamt. And it's like that. When I'm awake, I don't remember what I dreamt. And when I'm dreaming, I don't remember what my duties are when I'm awake. But still, I, I'm, I retain the same identity. So material nature is also like that. Material nature goes into a sleeping and awakened position. 
And there's one place in the Bhagavatam where Prabhupada, where actually it says in the verse, I believe, how the Lord wakes up the material energy just like a man wakes up his wife for enjoyment. And Prabhupada says, you know, his Krishna's always enjoying with the internal energy. But he also has Leela with the external energy. So sometimes he wants to wake her up. So this idea of sleeping is also taken somewhat symbolically in the sense that even our wakeful life in material consciousness is a kind of sleeping. If we are always existing in divine consciousness and yet we have so much ignorance that is compared to sleeping. It's as if our spiritual life was sleeping. Our original consciousness is is sleeping. We're in some sort of a dream state. Often this whole world is compared to the dream of Mahavishnu, Yoga Nidra. He's in a yogic sleep and he's dreaming the world. At an individual level, our activities in the world are like a collective dream. I mean, we generally understand reality to be something that's verified by others. The reason that we conclude our dreams in normal, are, in the normal sense of the word are unreal is that no one shares them. If I have a dream that I've done something with you, you haven't shared that experience, so therefore I conclude that it, it, it didn't happen. Whereas if I actually do that thing with you in a wakeful state and you also collaborate that I've done it with you, then we conclude that it's actually happened. But the whole material world is really like a collective dream. Something like nowadays people participate in computer games through the internet where groups of people in various parts of the world all have a shared experience of playing the game. But it's still a game. It's not reality. So just because there's a collective experience of going together as a team and killing monsters doesn't mean that it's happening in reality. So in a similar way, our whole experience in this world is really like a collective dream engineered by this illusory energy. So what we are told here is that our spiritual life should swallow the darkness. It should swallow the darkness. Just like here in Hawaii, where I am, so the sun rises at 6 o'clock, the sun, approximately. So the sun is rising just at the time that my class is beginning. And I see, you know, outside and, and through the window, the darkness gradually dissipating. So I like to go out very early when the stars are still visible. And I usually take a walk in the morning up and down the street. And often I'm taking a walk just as the, the darkness is turning to light. That's my favorite time of the day. So the, the idea is that we should come out of this sleeping condition that we already exist in an awakened state. We are, our spiritual consciousness is already there. It's simply covered by a darkness of, of sleep, and we should remove it. Now, I find it very interesting that we have the word swallows here. And I find this particularly interesting because uh, right now the Shastric Advisory Council, of which I'm the, the acting chair, is working on a paper of hermeneutics, which means how do we understand the words of Shastra and the words of our Acharyas. And generally we're told that we should take the uh, literal primary meaning 
of the words of Shastra. But here we have this word swallowed, apibat. But it's not meant literally, it's meant poetically. It's not that when the Mahatattva manifests all the varieties of the material world, that there's an actual swallowing activity of the dissolution of darkness, as if a huge mouth opened and the, and something called darkness entered the mouth and there was some action of a tongue and there was some swallowing into a, a, a stomach. So one could say, well, that's the literal meaning. That if that's if that's the literal meaning, that must be what it what it means. It must be what happens. So how do we know whether that whether a word is a literal meaning or not? I mean, there are other times when we take the word swallows quite literally. So, for example, in the two leelas where Krishna swallows the forest fire, we understand that literally. We understand Krishna opened his mouth and he he sucked in the fire and he swallowed the fire. And, you know, somebody could argue, well, people don't, that's, that's not something that's normally done. If you're going to put out a fire, you don't swallow it. So maybe that's also metaphorical, that Krishna did something to put out the fire, and it was as if he swallowed it. So how do we know when to take something literally and how to take something poetically? So one of the ways is that we look at the commentary of our acharyas. And we notice here that Srila Prabhupada in his purport, although he again uses the word swallowed, he doesn't discuss it as something literal. He discusses it as something metaphorical. And therefore we can understand that it's poetic. Also the Mahatattva is not presented like that as as a... a person with a mouth and so forth. So that is one way we can understand whether something is to be taken as literal or metaphorical. Another way we can understand is in general context. So what is the, the context in this chapter? What is the context in this section of the Bhagavatam? What is the, so in the context of Krishna swallowing the fire, we see that Krishna is doing so many activities like that. He's lifting a mountain. He's dancing on a thousand-headed snake. He's he's doing all kinds of activities that are are fantastic from the point of view of a human being, especially a human being in the in the Kali Yuga. But we don't have any other example given of the Mahatattva having some sort of a, a form that is swallowing and eating. So we have that kind of context. Then, of course, we have the context ultimately of the Siddhanta. And the, con- the context of the Siddhanta doesn't really help us in this regard. Uh, we're not really able to tell from that. But we're able to tell from the context because either interpretation would be consistent with Siddhanta. But we're able to tell from the context of the Bhagavatam in general and we're able to tell from the commentary of the Acharyas. So we want to get to the point where this darkness in our own, covering our own consciousness is also swallowed. It's also gone. And our real light and our real effulgence and our real knowledge is manifested. Go out of the darkness, go into the light. So this is the Vedic aphorism. And one could 
make the argument that all of the genuine religions of the world teach something along this line. So even the religions that have degenerated to karmakanda, they still have some concept of getting free of sin. Some sort of freedom. Getting free of sin and and walking in the ways of God and understanding God. Even if their idea is that they want to get free of sin and they want to be with God simply for enjoying the world, which is, of course, still in darkness. (laughs) There's some idea. Some idea of coming from ignorance to at least passion. So many of the world's religions are simply uh, promoting uh, the mode of passion. Some promote the mode of goodness, and some promote transcendence. But in all of them, all the bona fide religions of the world, I'm not talking about like Satanism or something. There's right now a woman taking a case to court in America that the um, abortion laws violate her satanic religion because she's informed when she wants to get an abortion, the government informs her that life begins at conception. <laughs> She says, that's violating my religious rights. Uh, so we're not talking about religion like, like that, so-called religion like that. But the bona fide religions all have some concept to some degree of some kind of a removal of contamination, a, a coming into the light, a coming into knowledge, a coming into uh, a position of, of higher than ignorance higher than than sin. Of course, in our Vaishnava theology, our understanding of waking up is very detailed. We don't just want to wake up from being an animal-like criminal to being a responsible person, nor do we even want to wake up just to being a forgiving and balanced and compassionate person in the mode of goodness. Nor do we even just want to wake up that I am a spirit, I am Brahman, I am one with the Lord, I am one with the light. Nor do we even just want to wake up to I am going to Vaikuntha where God is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. But we want to wake up that interestingly enough to another kind of bewilderment. We're not interested in waking up just to seeing things as they are, knowing things, and being spirit. We want to awaken to a relationship with Krishna in Vraja. And the relationships with Krishna in Vraja are in a kind of illusion of love. And we have some idea of illusions of love, even from our dealings in this world. For example, in this world, uh, parents always see their children, to some extent, as children. And some of that is a biological protection, especially with opposite gender parents and children. So the father sees the daughter as as a little girl, and the mother sees the son as a little boy, even if their children are in their 40s or 50s. And this kind of vision... Uh, mitigates against sexual attraction between parents and children. But it's a kind of illusion. You know, you, you, I remember that my father 
uh, coming. I was, I guess, in my late 40s. And my father said to me, Oh, you know, you're my baby. I was the youngest child. I said, Daddy, I'm already grandmother. And he said, Not to me. He said, To me, you're my baby. So there's this kind of illusion. When we love somebody, we, we, have, we have illusions about them. When we love people, uh, we see even their bad qualities as attractive. And when we lose a sense of their position, you know, so when you, your, your spouse may be their president or their prime minister, but, you know, when you're just with them personally, and you treat them very casually, Right, and this is a question also put to the Shastric Advisory Council: Can a husband initiate his wife? And of course, there are examples in Shastra of a man initiating his wife. But one of the discussion points is that the two relationships are somewhat different. You know, if someone's your spiritual master, so you're supposed to treat them as good as God. Uh, but if someone's your husband, you might argue with him. You might argue with him about the finances or about the children or something in a way that wouldn't be really proper to argue with a guru. So the point is that the, the intimacies of love also put us in a kind of illusion in this world. So we have some sense, have some sense of what this means. But we want to wake up to this thinking of Krishna. Krishna is my little boy, just like Mother Yasoda. So we're singing the Dhammadrastika every day this month. And we celebrate on the Diwali day when Mother Yasoda ties up Krishna. So from a point of view of tattva, that, that's a, it's absurd. And in fact, religions who worship God as just the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings... They, they can't relate to this idea that you're thinking, you know, okay, I have to, I have to punish God. <laughs> I have to train God. There's this nice story from, uh, about Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, how Jagannath Mishra one day, he was rebuking his son very severely. And then he had a dream where a Brahmana appeared to him and said, you know, your son is Narayana. He'd be telling him what he did wrong and correcting him so severely like this. And Jagannath Mishra in the dream said, I don't care who he is, he's my son. So this is the kind of awakening that we're aiming for, where we see Krishna as a son or our friends, the cowherd boys are saying, you know, hey, you think you're so strong, but I can beat you up. And uh, The gopis are saying, oh, Krishna, you didn't behave very nicely today, you, you can't. I spend any time with my friend. So this is what we want to wake up to. We want to wake up to a, a very intimate relationship with the Lord. But how do we wake up? And again, this is a, it's a universal thing. Although our particular aim for wakefulness and the Vaishnava Sampradayas, and particularly uh, in the Gaudiya Sampradaya, Nimbarka Sampradaya, to some extent in the Balabha Sampradaya. Our particular desire for awakening is Vraj Kumar. But the basic process for awakening, again, if you look at any tradition, it's, it's universal. It's, the process for awakening is eternal. 
And that is uh, basically two factors. And Prabhupada again speaks about this extensively in his lecture on this verse. One is our association and the other is our desire. And you could say either of those is absolute because they, they tend to imply the other. Ultimately, it's only desire. If I want to wake up, I will wake up. Of course, saying that <laughs> immediately implies that if we're not fully awake, we don't want to be. That with, with one side of our mouth, we say, yes, I want to be enlightened, I want to wake up. But with the other side of our mouth, we say, well, not right now. Like St. Augustine prayed, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Lord, let me get free of these attachments, but not today. <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> so, <laughs> the main thing is desire. Prabhupada said that Krishna will never interfere. He will never touch the free will of the living entity. So just as Krishna has free will, we have free will. And our ignorance or our awakefulness is all due to our desire. Just like people take intoxicants, generally speaking, they're taking them willingly. They want to become bewildered. They want to have their consciousness distorted. So it is desire. And if we had full desire immediately, we would become fully awakened immediately. That's really the beginning, middle, and end of it. But we can also say it is association, and it particularly uh, association of those who are awakened, but particularly among that association, the association and guidance of someone, at least one person, who we, under, we take as a guru. I mean, it is a fact that any association with the sadhu Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastra Khoi, Lava Matra Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi Hoi. All perfection comes from an eleventh of a second association with the Sadhu. Any, any Sadhu in any relationship. However, again, all these Shastras say one must have a Guru. And we notice in all the world's traditions, there's always some prophet or teacher or leader that one is, is, is accepting. One is not just accepting God. One is accepting God as explained through some, some sort of spiritual master. Why? Why particularly do we have to have a, someone as guru, not just association with sadhu? Because when we associate with guru, we develop the essence of the desire to awaken, and that is humility. Prabhupada was asked, where does it say anything about guru in the Shikshastika? And he said, Trinatapi. To be more humble than grass. More humble than grass, because grass, you step on it, it pops up. More tolerant than a tree. A tree is tolerant in two ways. When it has its own internal needs, like thirst, it doesn't say anything, it's silent. And when others heard it again, it is silent. More tolerant than a tree, more humble than the grass. That our relationship with Guru is meant to develop that extent of humility. 
Because only with that extent of humility can we actually have a a taste and desire to awaken. Because what are we awakening to? We're awakening to our extreme insignificance. We're awakening to our extreme subordination. We're awakening to our extreme dependence, our extreme infinitely uh, dependence, infinite dependence. We're awakening to total, ins- total and absolute insignificance other than the fact that the Lord loves us and cares about us. That on our own, uh, without our relationship to the Lord, we have no meaning or significance whatsoever, like a little screw separated from a machine. And that is what we are, need to awaken to. And therefore we need humility with some sadhu. Now, of course, we're supposed to choose that guru intelligently through a period of testing. We're not supposed to follow blindly. That is condemned. But we need to follow. We need to actually submit and surrender to someone who's guiding us. And then to give up, Prabhupada also talks about for this verse, Sarva Dharman Parichaja, to give up all other identities, to be willing to relinquish all concepts that I am a Hindu, I am a Christian, I am an American, I am an Iranian, I am a this, I am that. Uh, to act simply as a servant of Krishna. And under the direction of Guru and with giving up these false identities, to actually render service. To practically start acting as an awakened soul, even in the sleeping state to start doing the actions of an awakened soul. And then this darkness in our life will be swallowed. It will, it will be gone. And we will awaken generally, gradually. Uh, generally, gradually. Like the sun comes up gradually, we wake up from sleep gradually. We get well from a disease gradually. Although it can happen instantaneously, uh, generally it will be a gradual thing that we start becoming aware and we start acting in the consciousness that I am not this body. And then we start acting in the consciousness of who we are. So this should be our basically constant drive. Let me fully surrender to Guru. So I, for the purpose of increasing and increasing my taste and my desire, and Krishna will respond to my desire, and allow me to come into my own original position. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions, okay, chastisements. I am unmuted, everybody. Questions or comments? I have a question. Um, sometimes it's hard to come up with a question when you're Promoter was giving class because usually I'll write down the question and she answers it before we get to the end. And so, <laughs> anyway, I, I wrote one that, <laughs> that persevered. You were talking about fear that we will not exist. And I was thinking that in the age of Kali, with it becoming so decadent, and it seems that the 
Kunta level, the anxiety level has gotten so extreme that because of the pain of existence, that some may fear existence and would prefer to not exist. Uh, just like those that take, that take, uh, that commit suicide. They're thinking that not existing is better than existing. Of course, they're thinking, I assume they're thinking that when when the, the poison uh, acts, then they will, there's not going to be another life, there's not going to be karma for it. it, it it's, nothingness is better than existence. And we often give the example of, of sweet rice with sand in it. So it kind of seems like if existence is all full of sand and that's all we're knowing, and we're thinking that there isn't anything after this, because Prabhupada, in our pranam prayers, we say that he came to free us from impersonalism and voidism. So if that philosophy is so prominent, it seems that many would prefer to not exist. In, in fact, uh, one of our, I know one of our God sisters who went through uh, horrific experiences. Uh, you know, she found that her husband was having an affair, and then she married again, and there were difficulties with her second husband, and then she got uh, stricken with a horrible disease, uh, extremely painful, that she was in, in, you know, suicide-level pain for like eight years before she finally found some relief. And then she had a... Um, her her own her her only grandchild uh, at a few days old was uh, given improper medical advice, which caused the child to be severely handicapped. And she told me that she basically decided, although she still had affection for Srila Prabhupada, that she just couldn't take up personalism. But she said she wasn't even interested in impersonalism. She said she wanted to become a Buddhist, Buddhist and go into the nothing. And she told me, she said, I don't even want to merge into the light. I want to become nothing. I want to cease to exist. So I, I would agree that the rising tide of suicide in the world and the rising tide of, of nihilism and in two forms. One is in a, a quasi-spiritual form as Buddhism, and the other is in the form of gross materialistic, or as Shalaputra would say, mechanistic science. So mechanistic science is also proposing a kind of voidism. In fact, mechanistic science and nihilistic Buddhism both propose that we never exist at all. They, they just, you know, mechanistic science says that the only thing that exists is some sort of electrical chemical impulses in the brain that all... Uh, concepts of individuality in life are, are just illusory, and nihilistic Buddhism says also that the that once you realize you're the observer, then you find out that this observing self is constantly being recreated, and doesn't have any kind of of a long term existence. I mean, people are attracted to this because it gives them a sense of detachment and relief, of simply I am not. You know, I am not this body, I am not this mind, I am not this world. I, I, I don't... I mean, even this mechanistic science that in one sense says you are the body and the mind, in another sense really says you're not. It really says that you, you don't exist. That the personality displayed by the brain is, is something very ephemeral. 
So people get some sort of a sense of relief, just that I'm not this awful thing. And in that sense, you could say they tried to conquer the fear of non-existence by fully embracing non-existence. But they're still trying to deal with the fear of non-existence. They're still trying to deal with that. They're just trying to deal with it by saying, okay, I fully accept it. I, I'm, I, I embrace the fear. I become one with the, with the fear so that it dissipates. Um, interestingly enough, both among the mechanistic scientists and among the nihilistic Buddhists, there's also an urge for existence. And the same is said, can be said for those who commit suicide. So universally, those who survive attempted suicide report that at a certain point in the process, they wish they hadn't done it. You know, as they start jumping out the window, they immediately regret their decision. And people who want to commit suicide, if they can be convinced that their problems will be solved, no longer wish to commit suicide. They wish to commit suicide only because of intractable, intractable problems. Among the mechanistic scientists, we do see, generally speaking, an effort to try to use science for the improvement of their own life and often for the improvement of the lives of others or sometimes of the world in general. So often the same scientists who propose that identity is nothing more than the brain are working at trying to improve people's lives. Now, if they actually believed that we were nothing more than the brain, why would they do that? It, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, really, it doesn't really match. And the same is said for the Buddhists. So even the nihilistic Buddhists who preach that ultimately we don't exist, they will say that higher than simply entering into a void is the development of compassion. And they will say that those who have developed this compassion find a much higher pleasure than simply cessation of existence such that they willingly will take birth again and again, although what it is exactly that takes birth is a little hard for me to comprehend. But they will willingly take birth again and again out of compassion. So it, it's very interesting that although people propound a philosophy of non-existence, when it comes to their actual behavior and it comes to their actual aspirations, this, this god-sister of mine who's given up Krishna consciousness is spending her time working for animal rights. So why, why is she doing that? If, if she really believes that there's no individuality and there's no soul and the highest expression of reality is nothingness then why would she care that animals are being exploited and tortured why would it matter there there's no such thing as a as an animal there's no such thing as anything it all becomes meaningless but yet they're working in the world generally speaking and there are a few exceptions and there are a few people who really walk the talk like Mahavir but generally they don't so you, you find that there, there is, at our heart, a desire to exist and a desire for a loving relationship. Mm. Uh, Ramananda, said, you said you have a question, and as we only have like four minutes, so what's your question? 
Well, thank you. Uh, you were speaking elaborately about how the disciple should view the guru. As far as a shiksha guru, is there not a difference in how tr the instructions are treated? Because it's obvious that with the, the diksha guru, you have to accept if you want to become Krishna conscious, but be liberated, you have to accept the instructions in Toto. But the shiksha guru, you know, just like a teacher, you can have many teachers, and if there's um, instructions that don't exactly fit, are you... Well, this is... Would you... I, I think you're sort of, in, you know, let's, if we look shastrically speaking, so it says that there's really no difference between Shikshan and Diksha Guru, they just differ in function. Now, traditionally, your Diksha Guru was a householder brahmana who lived in your village or with whom you studied in your guru's village and one of the items they were training you in was deity worship which is why you wanted to go for a householder brahmana because those were the people doing deity worship the renunciates were not generally doing deity worship and you were being initiated into a mantra and into a system for worship and Prabhupada says that usually the traveling renunciates were more in the position of shiksha gurus, that they were coming as they were traveling through, they were giving some instruction, but they weren't initiating you into a mantra. And yes, one can have many shiksha gurus, but only one diksha guru, because you don't need to be initiated into a mantra more than once, into a procedure more than once, once you're initiated, you're initiated into it. Although we do find in, in tradition that you could have different diksha gurus for different mantras. I think Ramanujacharya had like five different Diksha Gurus for five different mantras that he received. Uh, you can be initiated into doing a yagya, for example. Uh, so there's there's different kinds of Diksha also. There's the, the Upanaya Diksha that the young Brahmana boys particularly would get so they could study the scriptures. They weren't allowed to study the scriptures otherwise. But in addition, they might get Diksha into a Vaishnava mantra later by a Vaishnava Guru. So I think making some sort of demarcation that, you know, your Diksha Guru is the Guru and your Shiksha Gurus are sort of peripheral Gurus isn't, doesn't really hold up in terms of Shastra and tradition. The, I mean, Srila Prabhupada makes the point very strongly in the Nectar Devotion that until one has received initiation, one has not established one's connection with Krishna. So he's talking there, of course, about Vaishnava initiation and that you're committing to a particular uh, guru, you're, you're committing to a particular uh, parampara and sampradaya. So he's, he's talking about, about that. But on the, on the practical level and from the, from the tradition and from the Shastra, one should have at least one guru to whom one fully surrenders whether that's the guru who gave you diksha or that's the shiksha guru, that's, that's not something that's given in Shastra. Shastra doesn't say it's the guru who gives you diksha to whom, you, you know, to whom you're in this position of full surrender and shiksha gurus. Or it's not, that would not be accurate shastrically or in tradition. It, it just wouldn't be accurate. And you find... Um, 
I mean, in, for, in Krishna's Leela, he takes Diksha from Gargamuni, but Sandipani Muni is his Shiksha Guru, and you know, he has, has a different relationship with each of them. We have Lord Ramachandra who takes Diksha from Vasista, uh, although he takes certain kinds of Diksha from Vishramita. Also, and he takes Shiksha from both of them. So it's... Can I... I think it's more complex and individual than what you're trying to say. Yeah? Okay, can I restate it then? Uh, I have absolute uh, trust, uh, commitment to my Diksha Guru, Shiva Prabhupada. But then if I would have to treat anyone that I take instruction from, my my Shiksha Gurus, which are many, then uh, I would be very, very anxious to accept anybody as Shiksha. Well, it depends how you're defining Guru. If you're defining Guru in a general way as a teacher, because the word Guru can mean teacher. And anyone who teaches you anything, if we're just looking at the Sanskrit word guru, can be called a teacher. And one may have many, many teachers in different areas. So, you know, if you have a teacher for how to repair your carburetor, so you're going to be submissive and surrendered in carburetor repair, but you're not going to be submissive and surrendered in terms of, you know, making a japati from that person. So that if you're going to take the word guru in that sense, and even in terms of receiving instruction from other Vaishnavas, it's like that. But once once you really say to someone, you know, you're my shiksha guru, uh, you know, it depends again how you're looking at the terms. If you're looking at the terms of like, well, this is someone who gives me some help and advice in certain areas. They're a sadhu with whom I associate. Uh, And, you know, they give me advice and... I'm, I think it over and I apply what I want and I deal with it as I want. I, w- I mean, in this sense, you could say that person is a shiksha guru by literal definitions. They're giving you instruction and they're a teacher. But we're, when we're talking about the kind of guru that one should surrender to, the essence isn't whether that person gave you diksha or not. That's not... The essence is the relationship of, of trust and the relationship in general, and it might not be the person who gave you diksha. It could be the only thing you have to do with the person who gave you diksha is you got diksha from them, and that's it. And again, in tradition, we have many instances where a person gets mantra diksha and some basic instructions about the mantra from a particular person, but that's not really their primary relationship as guru. It's, it's very individual. But we need to have somebody to whom we really surrender with trust and faith. That's the point. It's not that anybody on whom you put the appellation guru has to be that person. Depends on how you use the word guru. So this is a... I'm sorry that I need to go do my morning program with the grandkids. And so I left many more questions unanswered than I have answered with this, I'm sure. Shilaprabhad ki jai. Thank you very much. Thank you.